Chapter Eleven of The Return of Alfred by Herbert George Jenkins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Eleven. Mr. Tassel is surprised. One. When Smith pushed open the dingy ground glass door of Number One Twenty Tombland, on which in black letters appeared the legend "Enquiries, Tassel, Blaine, and Port, Solicitors." He was quite prepared to be hailed once more as a returned prodigal. It was with relief that he saw behind a small counter a dark-haired youth, whose dislike of water was manifested by a dark rim that began above his collar and rose gradually on either side, until it finally disappeared behind his large red ears. "'Is Mr. Tessel in?' Smith inquired. "'What name, sir?' asked the lad, declining to commit himself. "'Say a gentleman wishes to see him on important business.' "'Yes, sir. What name?' repeated the youth, without show of emotion. "'Give him that message, please,' said Smith, realizing for the first time in his life the importance of labels as applied to human beings. For a moment the lad stood gazing at him out of a pair of pink-rimmed eyes. Then, reluctantly lifting the flap of the counter, he motioned Smith to pass through.' A moment later he threw open a door on which appeared in white letters the words waiting-room. Without requesting the caller to take a seat, the lad closed the door, leaving Smith to listen to the tick-tack of the clock, or, as an alternative, to gaze at a much foxed mezzotint of Lord Ellenborough. He was speculating as to what would be the psychological effect upon his clients of a bowl of roses upon a lawyer's waiting-room table, when the door opened and the lad reappeared. "'Mr. Tassel can't see you, sir, unless you send in your name,' he said, with the air of one who entirely concurs with the terms of an ultimatum. "'Then tell Mr. Tassel, with my compliments,' said Smith, "'that I'll wait here until he can see me. By the way, if you've got any lighter reading than a treatise on evidence, you might let me have it.' The lad gazed up at Smith, a new respect in his eyes. It was not usual for the decrees of the senior partner to be flouted in this way, and, with the true instinct of the Briton, he determined that Smith must be somebody of importance. "'You might add that I come from one of Mr. Tassel's oldest clients,' added Smith, who had no desire to spend longer than was absolutely necessary in the uninspiring atmosphere of the lawyer's waiting-room. Two minutes later the lad returned with a request that Smith would follow him. Proceeding along a corridor, the boy opened another ground-glass door, on which it was announced that Mr. Tassel was private. "'The gentleman, sir,' said the lad. Thus labelled, Smith stepped into the room, and the door closed behind him. He was conscious of an expanse of bald head surrounded on three sides by a fringe of grey hair. A moment later, a movement of the expanse of baldness brought into his range of vision a pair of keen grey eyes looking at him through gold-rimmed spectacles. For a second there was sternness in those eyes, then a look of bewilderment and surprise, followed by a quick movement backward of the revolving chair as Mr. Tassel struggled to his feet. "'Mr. Warren!' he cried. Then he plumped down into the chair again, and sat looking at Smith as if he had been an apparition, his hands gripping the arms of his chair until the knuckles stood out hard and white from the surrounding yellowness. With an effort he appeared to regain control of himself and motioned Smith to a chair. Mr. Tassel seemed to have been conceived in neutral tints, the prevailing shade being a soft yellow. There was nowhere about him any suggestion of blood. The lips of his large mouth were grey, 
his voice woolly, and his general appearance that of a man who had stepped out of a picture some forty or fifty years old. "'I was afraid you would,' said Smith warily, as he dropped into the chair indicated. "'Everybody seems to crumple the moment I appear, at least in this county,' he added. "'It's positively monotonous.' Mr. Tassel swallowed noisily, his Adam's apple leaping upwards, and then reappearing again with startling suddenness. In as few words as possible, Smith proceeded to relate the events that led up to his appearance in Mr. Tassel's office. By the time he had finished, Mr. Tassel had entirely recovered his self-possession, mainly by the process of polishing and repolishing his spectacles, reinforced by several mighty swallows. Three times he took them off, and three times he replaced them, first subjecting the lenses to a vigorous rubbing with a maroon silk pocket-handkerchief. As he did so, he gazed across at Smith, a strange and inscrutable look in his eyes. Then, as if suddenly realizing that the interview was of a professional nature, he replaced his spectacles, pursed his lips, leaned back in his chair, and, placing the points of his fingers together, proceeded to regard the tips as if they held the solution of the riddle that Smith had propounded. "'So you see, I am not Alfred Warren,' Smith concluded, "'but just plain James Smith, "'one of the tens of thousands of Smiths "'who avoid confusion with other Smiths "'by sheer personality.' "'I understand,' said Mr. Tassel, "'in his best county-court manner, "'that you climbed the gates of the Grange.' "'I did.' "'May I ask why?' "'Because I was wet.' Mr. Tassel removed his glasses and became absorbed in polishing them. "'I always climb gates when I'm wet.' Mr. Tassel looked up, still continuing to polish his glasses, but Smith's face was as grave as that of a judge. "'You knew the gates were there?' queried Mr. Tassel. "'Well, I suspected it,' Smith admitted, still with the utmost gravity. "'When a thing has almost torn off your trousers, you do,' he added dryly. Even Einstein could not avoid it. The night was very dark. Intensely. Still, you saw the gates of the Grange, persisted Mr. Tassel, as he reassumed his glasses. I ran into them. And climbed them. With infinite difficulty. And yet you say you are not Mr. Alfred Warren, but Mr. James Smith. Mr. Tassel raised his eyes from his fingertips and looked at his visitor over the top of his spectacles. There was something of sternness in his gaze. "'I did, and I am,' said Smith evenly. Mr. Tassel nodded gravely, as if the answer in no way surprised him. He returned to a minute examination of his fingertips. Then, raising his eyes again, he proceeded once more to regard Smith over the top of his spectacles. "'The likeness is certainly remarkable,' he said a little dryly, Smith thought. After another pause, he continued, "'I take it that you are not prepared to acquaint me with your actual identity. In the strictest confidence, of course,' he added. "'I've already done so,' was the smiling rejoinder. "'I am James Smith.' "'Of?' interrogated the lawyer. "'Of nowhere in particular.' "'Hmm,' murmured Mr. Tassel, as he sucked in his lips. "'I would advise,' he continued, with great deliberation, "'that you produce evidence of, um, uh, a 
an uncontrovertible nature that will um, establish definitely your identity in that i entirely agree said smith quietly only it happens to be the one thing that i am not prepared to do why the interrogation came like a pistol shot family reasons was the quiet rejoinder you say that the servants have identified you as well he queried they have said smith i might even add with enthusiasm mr tassell proceeded to make further mysterious noises somewhere behind the region of his adam's apple which bobbed about like an eggshell on the water-jet of a shooting-gallery you have insisted that they are mistaken he queried my dear sir said smith patiently i might swear it on the apocrypha or the koran they wouldn't believe me you might disappear said mr tassell tentatively i might he agreed but you have decided not to i have with pursed up lips and a roving adam's apple mr tassell proceeded to grapple with this new aspect of the situation you realize of course there may be difficulties even embarrassments he said great gulliver cried smith there are scores of them in little bilstead and no doubt others will present themselves with the passage of time one got me by the arm in this very city only half an hour ago smelling vilely of patchouli and he proceeded to tell of the girl in the jumper and the harvest festival hat mr tassel looked grave there may even be legal complications he said without however raising his eyes from their absorbed contemplation of his finger-tips there will be legal complications he added that's why i came to you smith stifled a yawn when you when mr warren mr tassell corrected himself disappeared seven years ago there were some extremely difficult matters requiring adjustment i gathered as much i see this time there was no mistaking the dry tone in which the words were uttered and smith found himself gazing into a pair of keen shrewd eyes which he decided were not over friendly you are a very bold man mr um, smith you mean cried smith had my advice been sought i should unhesitatingly have opposed your being identified as alfred warren suggested smith quietly mr tassell's keen eyes were once more sought smith i cannot help being like this blighter warren can i i know he was a bit of an outsider how again the interrogation came like the click of a trigger when the family butler follows the prodigal about with a decanter of whisky and a siphon it is not exactly indicative of previous pussyfoot tendencies is it but that may imply only weakness said the lawyer you used a term blighter agreed smith a man doesn't leave home because he takes whisky and soda very little soda by the way at breakfast true said mr tassell once more operating upon his spectacles with a maroon silk handkerchief i feel it my duty mr warren smith please mr smith i feel it my duty to warn you that 
um, certain matters were kept from Lady Warren six years ago, when you, um, when Mr. Warren disappeared. Mr. Tessel cleared his throat with a portentous solemnity he usually reserved for inquests, and fixed Smith with a keen, steely gaze, as if he would read his innermost thoughts. "'It certainly looks as if I'm in for something exciting,' said Smith easily. "'After all, when you assume a prodigal's responsibilities, you cannot expect altogether to avoid the husks, and encounter only commonplace and butlers in a land flowing with whisky and soda.' To Mr. Tassel such obvious cheerfulness appeared in the light of flippancy. He had never liked Alfred Warren. Now he positively disliked him. He regarded it as an insult to his professional amour propre to expect a lawyer to be taken in by so obvious a subterfuge as this pretense of being another man, so that he might inherit the earth without reaping the whirlwind. "'I understand that others in Little Bilstead are convinced that you are—' "'Mr. Alfred Warren,' said Mr. Tassel. "'May I inquire if they are friendly?' "'About as friendly as fowls are to a fox,' said Smith. There was something about Mr. Tassel's whole manner that irritated him. He seemed bloodless, devoid of all humanity. "'If I am Alfred Warren, why should I want to deny it?' he demanded. "'There might be reasons,' there was an ominous note in Mr. Tassel's woolly tones, "'What reasons?' "'I said there might be reasons,' said Mr. Tessel quietly. Lady Warren was one of his oldest clients. "'You speak in parables,' said Smith, "'and this prodigal business has wearied me of the very thought of a parable.' "'Then I will speak plainly,' was the rejoinder. "'By staying on at Little Bilstead, you place yourself in very grave danger.' I fear I can in no way associate myself with your action without Lady Warren's explicit instructions. I shall cable. If you do, it will most probably be murder, said Smith, and he proceeded to explain what Dr. Crane had told him. Then I will write, continued the lawyer, as Smith rose. You're not very helpful, he said, with a smile. Good morning, and he passed out of the room. In the main office he found the pale-faced lad with the perpetual high-water mark, but before he had time to detach his attention from an evil-smelling pear-drop and the bendance of the air, over which he was pouring, Smith had passed out of the door. "'Rummin,' said the lad, as he returned to the bendance of the air. When he had walked some hundred yards or so, Smith suddenly stopped dead, much to the embarrassment of a little man who was close behind him and who had some difficulty in avoiding a collision. The full significance of Mr. Tessel's words had suddenly dawned upon him. The lawyer regarded him as the real prodigal, who, by denying his identity, hoped to escape from the consequences of some deed or deeds he had committed. "'Pleasant for the understudy,' he muttered, as he drew a cigarette-case from his pocket and resumed his walk. 2. The return journey was a miserable affair. On arriving at the maid's head, Smith had found Marjorie and Eric in the midst of a heated argument, which arose from Marjorie's statement that Eric was to occupy the front seat beside her, so that she could see he did not get into mischief. Eric point-blank refused, but a compromise was effected by Smith volunteering to sit with Eric in the tonneau, ostensibly to look after him, but he had no illusions as to the real reason. For the first half of the journey this arrangement quite spoiled Eric's enjoyment. 
Later he discovered that Smith was so absorbed in his own thoughts as to be oblivious as to what was going on around him, after which big-game shooting by catapult continued apace. The memory of the success he had achieved with the ditcher inspired in Eric the hope that some other specimen of roadside biped might be found bent to a suitable angle. As the car hummed along, devouring the white road that ribboned out before it, Eric began to despair. So far the bag for the homeward journey consisted of two farm labourers caught, alas, in an upright position, one pig, three fowls, and a dog, but the recollection of the anguished yell of the ditcher still rang musically in his ears. He had almost given up hope of further sport that day, when a turn in the road disclosed the unbelievable. There, just ahead, was a man in a suit of checks as vivid as the ditcher's language had been, and he was bending over a motorcycle. As the car purred past him, the owner of the checks, a man of generous build, glanced up momentarily, revealing a luxuriant auburn moustache. But he was obviously absorbed in some baffling problem his engine had presented to him, for he resumed his bent position immediately. Eric almost whooped with joy. The target offered by the ditcher was as nothing to that presented by the man in the brown and white checks. It was so good that Eric double-charged his catapult. Taking careful aim over the back of the car, he let fly. He bobbed down instantly, but a shout, half yell, half roar, caused him to raise an incautious head that he might view the extent of the casualty. He saw his victim dancing in the middle of the road, either with rage or pain, Eric could not be sure which, but from the fact that the man's hands were behind him, he drew his own conclusions. As Eric's red head rose above the hood of the car, a brown and white check arm appeared, terminating in a fist, in the motion of which there was menace. A moment later, that same fist was holding a notebook. Then another bend in the road hit both motorcycle and owner from view, and Eric, with a sigh of contentment and a side-glance at Smith, who sat moodily wrapped in his own thoughts, sank down on the seat beside him. They were getting too near home for further sport. The significance of the notebook Eric did not properly realize until Little Bilstead was reached, when he found that the mud he had carefully plastered over two of the figures of the number plate had been jolted off during the journey. "'You've been awake all the time?' he queried of Smith, as he stood for a moment at the hall door of the Grange. "'Awake?' repeated Smith vaguely. "'Certainly.' "'If you hadn't been, I might have had some fun,' was the rejoinder, and he dashed away to forage for a meal, leaving Smith wondering. That night Eric Stannard slept soundly. Conscious that by his master's strategy he would be able to confute the evidence of the man who owned the brown and white tweeds and the auburn moustache, should he present himself. The catapult itself he had taken the precaution of burying. In all great undertakings, foresight ensures both the success of the operation and immunity from the consequences. End of chapter 11